Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. On this episode of Newt's World, this is the true story about the COVID pandemic that many of you have never heard. It's told by my guest today, Alex Berenson. Alex's new book, Pandemia, How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government, Rights, and Lives, is out today. And I wanted to read his statement from the press release for the book because I was really struck by it. He says, quote, A few of us looking closely at the data, not what the health authorities or governors or reporters were saying about the data, but at the data itself, could see two crucial facts emerging as early as the first week of April 2020. First, COVID was far less threatening than it had originally seemed. Yes, it could be deadly, especially to the elderly and people with severe comorbidities such as kidney disease, but it would not overwhelm the medical system, much less all of society. Second, the lockdowns, at least as the United States and Europe conducted them, were useless, if not counterproductive. I'm really pleased to welcome somebody that I admire greatly, my guest, Alex Berenson. First of all, before we dive into this, I want to carry you back through your background twice. First, as a journalist, between 1999 and 2010, you covered the drug industry and financial fraud as a reporter for the New York Times. You wrote, Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana and Mental Illness and Violence. And then you went on to be a novelist, which I want to get to second. But what do you think you learned in your journalistic years that then influenced how you've written Pandemia? Oh, 
I mean, that's a great question because the connection is very real. And I covered the drug industry for the Times for a period of years. And I saw a couple of the really important lawsuits up close and failed drugs up close. Vioxx, most importantly. Vioxx was a drug that Merck made, an anti-arthritis drug, a painkiller, that they started selling in 1999 and had to pull from the market in 2004 after it was conclusively proven that this drug caused heart attacks. And the best estimates are that the drug caused 140,000 heart attacks and killed up to 55,000 people which is something that everyone seems to have forgotten about, this enormous damage that Vioxx caused. And Merck is not a second-tier drug company. They are arguably the worldwide leader in pharmaceutical development. They're arguably the, the best drug company in the world, and yet they had this happen. And the story that unfolded that came out from the documents as part of these lawsuits that were filed against Merck by people who had taken Vioxx and had heart attacks and died, and also by investigations from the FDA and elsewhere, was a story of a company that developed this drug, realized early on that there was a serious potential problem with it in terms of its tendency to cause clots that could cause heart attacks and strokes, and yet pushed forward with development anyway, and sort of told itself a story that the drug wasn't actually as dangerous as the data made it seem to be. And I watched this happen, Newt. You can see it in the documents, and you can see that the guy who was the chief medical officer, the chief scientist of Merck at the time, a brilliant scientist named Ed Skolnick, had decided that Vioxx was going to move forward and that no one within the company could really stand up to him, including the CEO. I mean, Skolnick was clearly more powerful than the CEO inside Merck. You mentioned my novels. I think this informed my novels, too, because large, powerful organizations, whether they're Merck or the CIA, are the same everywhere. You know, once a decision gets made, it's very, very hard for people internally to undo it if it comes from the top. And so I think we're seeing that on a grand, grand scale with COVID. So that was sort of like the mindset that I saw. But I also grew to understand some of the complexities of the development of drugs and especially of the way clinical trials can be used by drug companies to their advantage. And so, and I think that's something that people who don't cover the drug industry have no idea about. I think it's sort of very highly technical. And I'm not a PhD, I'm not a scientist, but I've always been pretty good at math and statistics. And so I was pretty quickly able to see problems in the data around COVID and then problems, and we could talk about the vaccines too, but problems in the clinical trial design for the vaccines. And so people say to me, you're not a scientist. And I say, that's true. I'm not a scientist, but I'm good at one thing. And that's comparing whether what people are saying matches what the underlying data is. That's something I would say I'm reasonably good at. And it was very clear from very early on in COVID that what we were being told didn't match the data. I'm curious for a second, as you know, because we've talked about it, I love your novels. I think you are remarkable at weaving together action, a strong central figure, but you've made me realize, as I listened to you just now, you've had a real knack both of dealing with the bureaucracy of intelligence and counterterrorism and with the layers of deception and reality. And I'm curious, first, I just have to ask you, because we've never really talked about this, what led you to decide to write novels, given your background as a journalist and as a nonfiction writer? I decided to write The Faithful Spy, which is the first Wells novel, really because I'd been in Iraq briefly, but a couple of times for the Times. And I felt there was stuff that, you know, as a reporter writing for the Times, you just can't capture. There's a world you can't capture. 
And I wanted to do that. And I also wanted to try to write fiction. And I had this idea for this character who was sort of this high noon type guy who nobody really trusts, the townspeople don't trust him, yet he is a good guy. And so that's who John Wells is. He's in Afghanistan trying to infiltrate Al-Qaeda. And along the way, he sort of gives everything up. And when he comes back to the United States, he finds that the CIA does not trust him because he has been gone so long. But I would say the books over time, it's not that they became less about Wells. I would say they became more about the agency and about these bigger picture questions. I became a novelist because of Iraq, I think, but I stayed a novelist because I wanted to explore this world, if that makes sense. And it seems to me that the lessons you learned describing both deception and bureaucratic infighting, in a sense, shaped you and made you more capable of looking at what's happening in terms of the way the elites and the establishment have dealt with COVID. You know, no one's ever said that before, but I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I think there is a connection there. You also got into another field that is becoming more important to us, particularly the week that the CEO of Twitter has announced suddenly he's stepping down. When you wrote Unreported Truth, Twitter banned you and Amazon attempted to ban you as the largest bookseller in the world. I mean, how did you deal with all that? Just to walk you through the chronology of what happened, Starting in June of 2020, I wrote these four booklets. They're called the Unreported Truths booklets, and you can buy them on Amazon. They've actually sold you know, quite well over the last 18 months or so. And I'd sort of become this voice about anti-lockdown, anti-mask, opening schools. The thing I'm proudest of, of all the things that I've written in the last 18 months, was my early and strong position that schools should be open, should remain open, that we were really damaging our children and I think that is the consensus now. I think most people would agree that the states that kept schools closed in the 2020-2021 school year made a giant mistake. And that's a year we'll never get back for those kids. And it should never have happened and will not happen again. And I was saying that as early as basically the beginning of May 2020 and, and took a lot of pressure for it, took a lot of heat for it. So I became this polarizing figure, I would say, both because of what I was saying and because of my tone on Twitter, which I think you can fairly describe sometimes as obnoxious. And so in June 2020, when I tried to publish the first Unreported Truths booklet through Amazon, they said no. They said they weren't going to publish it because it was about COVID. And then I protested on Twitter, and Elon Musk actually spoke out. And a few hours later, Amazon decided to allow me to publish the booklet. And clearly, there was tremendous demand for the booklet because the four booklets combined have sold something close to 400,000 copies. So people wanted this information. Okay, so then for the next really 12 months or so, I would say, although there was, you know, talk of censorship, it didn't touch me. I was very aggressive about what I was saying, but Twitter continued to allow me to tweet. And I was in touch with a fairly senior executive at Twitter from time to time saying, here's what I'm going to talk about. And people on Twitter, the left on Twitter, hated me. They kept calling for Twitter to ban me. Twitter took no action. And that began to change as I took a stronger position against the COVID vaccines. And I want to be really clear, Newt. I am not an anti-vaxxer in the sense of, you know, I've been vaccinated. My children have received all the standard childhood vaccines. I just believe that these vaccines, people say they weren't rushed. Of course they were rushed. They were moved from not existing to being put in people's arms in under a year. 
we took every possible shortcut to move these forward. And I thought at the end of last year, I thought that was dangerous. And I think, unfortunately, some of those dangers that we're already seeing are real. We can talk about that separately. But so I was speaking out against vaccine mandates, really. Not so much against no one should be vaccinated or this is graphene oxide, none of that nonsense, magnetism, none of that. I mean, when my mother asked me, you know, she didn't ask me, she told me she was getting vaccinated and she's now 77. I said, go ahead. You're in an age group where you're pretty high risk from COVID. You know, if you think this makes sense for you, you should do it. The data shows that it will, at least in the short term, reduce your risk of infection. That's a good thing. So just to be clear, I've not been one of these people who said nobody should be vaccinated. What I said was, there's a lot we don't know. We rushed these trials and there's some concerning data. And even if the vaccines were perfect, vaccine mandates for adults, for an illness that is not that dangerous to most adults, is a huge infringement on personal liberty. Okay, so that was my broad position on this. And as vaccine hesitancy increased over the summer, as vaccination uptake decreased in the United States starting in May and June, the Biden administration really got frantic. And in July, they said there's misinformation here. There's all these people spreading it, misinformation, disinformation. And it's time for the social media companies to take action. They said this publicly. And Twitter, which had taken no action against me for more than a year, and by the way, had explicitly told me that I was operating well within its guidelines, suddenly decided that I wasn't. And in the course of about a month and a half, I went from being completely fine on Twitter, or Twitter seemingly being fine with me, to Twitter banning me. And on August 28th of this year, I was banned. I can no longer communicate with my followers. At the time, that month, August, what I had written had gotten almost 200 million views on Twitter. So obviously I had a large audience. And almost as bad as that news is the fact that my archive is gone. I have it. Fortunately, I have access to my archive, but no one else can see any of my tweets. And these are tweets that, you know, most of them, even Twitter would not argue there's any problem with. And so those are just gone. I've been memory hold, you know, to use the term that's in fashion now. And so that's where we are. Now, I don't want to commit myself on your podcast to taking legal action, but let's just say I'm very, very close to taking legal action against Twitter. I will not be the first person, assuming I sue, if I sue, to have sued Twitter. President Trump has sued. Other social media, other people have been kicked off, have sued. And these lawsuits, for the most part, the companies have this Section 230 defense, which has proven very strong for them. I think I have a very strong claim. We'll see what happens if and when I move forward. But in the meantime, I'm denied access to this huge platform that is really the most important journalistic audience of our time. And you mentioned Dorsey leaving. That's a really important point. I think the censorship is likely to get worse, not better right now. Dorsey is a weird guy, but he did seem to conceive of Twitter as a platform for free speech. And it is not at all clear that the guy who's taking over from him feels that way. As an aside, could you have done any of this if you were still reporting for The New York Times? Oh, no, 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 no. Has that been a big change since you were first there? Well, the politics of the paper has changed. I couldn't have done it back when I worked for the Times because back then the Times didn't really want its reporters taking political stances or being overly controversial on social media. Now the Times is basically fine with that as long as the political stances are ultra woke and the controversy puts them on the left. So before 
I couldn't have done it because The Times was pretty committed to its reporters both seeming and being as objective as possible. Now I couldn't have done it because The Times no longer cares about that, but my views wouldn't be acceptable. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. As you know, there's a brilliant book on the Spanish flu, which really gives you a sense of both how shocking it was. And at the time, the science was very different than it is today, because we're talking about over 100 years ago now. But in fact, for their time, although it was not clear that they did a particularly worse job than we've done in the last year and a half. I know you compare the two. What's your sense of the way in which the world dealt with the Spanish flu, which actually may have been, I think, the Iowa flu in its real origin. At least there's a pretty good argument for that. And the way in which the world has dealt with the Chinese flu, which is pretty clearly the Wuhan flu. Well, I mean, the world didn't do that much about the Spanish flu. This is one of the interesting things in writing Pandemia, was looking back, we had just come out of World War I, right? Which was a horrible, unnecessary war where millions and millions of young men died. And so the scale of the tragedy of the Spanish flu was much greater objectively than the coronavirus. And I don't think anybody could disagree with that. It's not just in the number of people that it killed, but the fact that it killed so many young people and children 
who basically are not quite immune, but who are rarely, rarely at serious risk from the coronavirus. So objectively, the Spanish flu is much worse. Subjectively, the Spanish flu occupied a far smaller share of the public attention at the time than the coronavirus has now. People were concerned about the League of Nations and rebuilding Europe. They were concerned about the Soviet takeover of Russia, the United States. Were we going to allow women to vote? Were we going to prohibit alcohol? All those things were much more interesting to people and occupied much more attention than this flu. Look, life expectancies were shorter. People were more comfortable with the idea that there was going to be disease and death and infectious disease. And frankly, there were other issues that's around. And so we didn't really do very much about the Spanish flu. Various localities tried various things. In San Francisco, they tried masks. And in St. Louis, they shut bars for a couple weeks. But none of it lasted very long. And there's an argument now about this, but none of it really seems to have made much difference. The guy who ran the California State Board of Health, a doctor there, contemporaneously wrote a paper where he basically said, I can't really find anything that made any difference, including masking, which is quite striking today. And then it went away and we sort of forgot about it. Objectively, in the last two years, something like 120 million human beings have died. And about 5% of those people have died from the coronavirus. And we treat this like it's everybody. When I was in Congress, I did a lot of work with the Center for Disease Control, helped them get resources and often would go over and talk to people about epidemiology. I was really shocked at how bad our public health system was just at gathering accurate data and how bad they were at the CDC in trying to develop the lab tests, et cetera, and how parochially in, inwardly oriented they were and jealous of their authority in a way that guaranteed that we would slow down both accurate information and the rapid development of solutions. Did you have any notion before this happened of how badly our public health system has decayed? No, and you're entirely correct. There's a piece I want to write actually for my Substack. So now that Twitter has banned me, I've moved to this thing called Substack, which in a way, it's actually more real journalism than Twitter was because I can write at length. But I want to write a piece headline, CDC equals DMV. They really are inept. Scott Gottlieb, who is the former commissioner of the FDA, who's on television constantly talking about COVID, he just wrote a book called Uncontrolled Spread. And the book is mainly about the CDC's failure to come up with a test early on for COVID. And not just the failure to come up with a working test, but that they blocked other agencies and private companies from getting involved, exactly as you say, that they're parochial. And there's been a couple other books written about the vaccine and vaccine development. And what's very clear, although it's not explicitly said, is that NIH and FDA, when they were putting warp speed together, the idea was we're going to cut CDC out of this. We don't want CDC to have anything to do with vaccine development because they're just so bad at what they do. Look, the FDA has lots of problems, but the FDA is a pretty well-run organization, it seems to me, overall. And NIH, they do a lot of good bench science. And when they really get going, they can do good work, although they too have problems. But they are in a different universe than the CDC. The CDC is just a backwater. I don't know when they did good work, but certainly in the recent past, they have not distinguished themselves. It was a surprise to me, not only how bad they were, but how they wanted to ensure that nobody else could be good. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. It was sort of remarkable. At the same time, you had this triple pattern. You had 
news media everywhere hyping this up. This is the summer storm could become a hurricane, weather at six kind of attitude that everything has to be shocking. Everything has to be on the edge of your seat because otherwise you lose audience. So you had the media driving it at one level. You had this bureaucratism, which guaranteed almost everywhere that we wouldn't be very effective in getting it done. And then you had, I think, a series of decisions in a world which is holistic. You can't have, for example, only epidemiologists in the room. If you don't have economists and sociologists and others, I look back on somebody like Franklin Roosevelt, who instinctively would have said to these people, we're not doing that, because it would have conflicted with his innate understanding of a complex world. And the idea of a handful of people getting in a room, making decisions that as epidemiologists were perfectly rational, but in the real world were going to cause enormous damage. And nobody in the room said, wait a second. And it's sort of like the Andromeda strain theory that you need one person who's an outlier who just breaks up the group think. Looking back, I'm almost startled at the speed with which all of the elites around the world adopted the same position, which was wrong. So you had a monolith of error by all of these powerful elites, and we're now learning just how much damage they were doing. The simplest example is if you lock everybody down and you focus only on COVID, you're not catching cancer, you're not catching heart disease, you're not catching liver disease. You actually have people dying because they can't get any attention to the normal everyday problems of life. Somebody will someday write a book on Emperor Fauci and the whole notion that somehow he became this imperial figure who drifted around almost like a bad version of the wizard in one of the Disney movies. We did a podcast with Fauci in February of last year where almost everything he said turned out to be wrong. It's funny because you say behind the curtain, but he's out front. I mean, the joke about Chuck Schumer, the most dangerous place in Washington is between Chuck Schumer and a camera. I mean, that's doubly true for Anthony Fauci. There's not a podcast or TV show that he won't go on. And it does make you wonder when he has any time to review any of the science that he loves to talk about so much. Look, the media in the United States, very clearly, besides the fact that you're absolutely correct, you know, they wanted to hype, they, fear is good for ratings, fear is good to keep people's attention. They very, very clearly saw that this was dangerous to Donald Trump, that this was bad for Donald Trump. It was bad for his chances of reelection. And I write this in Pandemia, Donald Trump has some strengths. He's willing to take chances, but he's not an empathetic guy. And empathy was called for early on in this, and he couldn't do that. And so the media saw that they could punish him with COVID, and they did over and over and over again. To go to your other point about that this was sort of globally synchronized, that doesn't explain why what happened in Germany. You know, why did Germany lock down? Why did South Korea lock down? Why did the media go crazy in those countries? And it does feel like there was a lot of coordination and communication by health authorities, by the media. There's something called the Trusted News Initiative, which has been publicly disclosed, where legacy media and social media are getting together to sort of try to control the COVID narrative and keep skeptics like me from having a large voice. Why the media lost its understanding that its role is not to work hand in glove with government, but to question government and to question public health authorities, I don't know.
One more thing, you know, you mentioned the lockdowns and how terrible they've been. Heart disease or cancer, those things getting worse because of lockdown. I'll just point out one more thing. Lockdowns worse than obesity. And obesity is the number one public health crisis in the United States. And we have gotten fatter and more out of shape as a nation. The number one risk factor for COVID, aside from advanced age, is morbid obesity. And we've made that worse. We've made horrible decisions. And the media has not just not questioned them. The media has been cheerleading every step of the way. Fauci's role is pretty obvious, but have you spent much time looking at Bill Gates' role in all this? You know, I have not. And Bobby Kennedy, in his book, which is focused on Fauci, also spends a lot of time with Gates. You know, people want to call me a conspiracy theorist. I'm actually the opposite of a conspiracy theorist. I tend to believe in incompetence rather than conspiracy. Bill Gates doesn't want 90% of the people in the world to die, right? The population theories make no sense. But I don't understand why Bill Gates is so obsessed with getting the world COVID vaccinated when it doesn't work that well. I don't understand his obsession with various parts of public health that really don't seem to work that well. But beyond that, I have not looked into him. Endemia, the book is 400 pages long. This is a case where I think it could have been 800 pages long. There could be a chapter on Bill Gates. Well, of course, that's an excuse for the next book. There you go. You know, you do the first 400, then you come back and do the second 400. a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Bill Fortune and I had a lot of fun and wrote a series of alternative histories, including a multi-volume 
history of the Civil War built around Lee winning at Gettysburg, and two volumes about the Japanese deciding to stay at Pearl Harbor and maximize their advantage right after the initial raid. If you were doing an alternative history of the last two years, what we could have done if we had been wise, we clearly had lots of people who are very smart. They just weren't wise. What do you think the rough outline of the world that could have been would be like? Honestly, and this is sort of disappointing to people when I say this, because my belief really is that we shouldn't have done very much. And we should have just acknowledged there's a real virus and that the greatest risk to most people who, again, who are not extremely elderly or morbidly obese, the greatest risk comes from these surges it can cause us, that it seems at times to be highly communicable. And we, we don't even to this day understand why these surges wax and wane as they do. But there do seem to be times when lots of people get this all at once, and that can put a real strain on the healthcare system. You don't want your hospitals filled with COVID patients because it means that that other people who need care may not get it. It also means that your nurses and doctors are working really hard. You're going to burn some of them out. And so you want to try to manage surges when they happen. And that can mean very limited efforts to encourage remote work, or maybe at a certain point you close bars and restaurants. Those are places where people are staying for a long period of time and they're speaking loudly. Those can be transmission vectors. Maybe you put the indoor basketball game off for a couple weeks but we're really talking very targeted interventions in that way. Then secondly, you do what DeSantis did in terms of trying to protect nursing homes, certainly not sending infected people back to nursing homes, trying to do rapid testing at nursing homes, because there's a tremendous amount of death that takes place in nursing homes and hospitals. But you have to understand, it's still going to spread in those places, unfortunately. And then the third thing is, I would have gone the other way in terms of panic. I would have been very reassuring to people. I would have said, look, we're going to handle this. The number one thing you should do is go about your life. If you're sick, stay home. If you're coughing, stay home. If you have symptoms, maybe wear a mask. That can make sense. Everybody else, go to work, go to school, live your life. Our scientists are working on a vaccine, which we're not going to rush, which we're going to develop at the right speed. We're going to find therapeutics for you, meaning drug treatments. We're going to beat this thing. We don't let the flu destroy our lives. We're not going to let this destroy our lives. And by the way, just to go back to HIV, HIV obviously is spread through sexual contact and blood. It's harder to spread. But HIV is also the most lethal virus we have ever seen in human history. And I'm not exaggerating. HIV untreated kills almost everyone, aside from a few incredibly lucky people who get it. More deadly per contact than Ebola? Yep, it's not even close. HIV kills like 95 to 99% of people who get it. Ebola is about 50%. We sort of forget because it was 40 years ago, but HIV was terrifying to people. I met Fauci when he was working in the mid-80s on HIV, which is part of why I always up until recently had such deep respect for him. Despite the massive risk that HIV poses, Back in the 80s and 90s, before there were treatments, the public health establishment said, we need to treat people who have HIV with respect, and we're not going to try to keep them quarantined, and even closing bathhouses, which were places where HIV was clearly being transmitted, was a big public fight and happened only slowly. And the media said stigmatizing people with HIV is a huge mistake. By the way, I agree with all of that, but the same people 
for some reason this time around, went crazy about the coronavirus and tried to frighten people, tried to frighten people who weren't at high risk. And now that the vaccine is available, have tried to stigmatize people who don't want the vaccine. They've behaved exactly the opposite as they did in the 80s and 90s. Obviously, the coronavirus is a respiratory virus. It is much more easily spread than HIV, but it is on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of lethality. So if I had been in charge by about mid-April of 2020, once it became clear that even in New York City, that as bad as things were getting, the hospital system was not going to collapse. I talk about this in pandemia. Once it became clear that even in New York City, the system could function without that much extra bed support, I would have said, look, we can manage this and we're going to manage this. And the number one thing is don't panic. Let the doctors and nurses do their jobs. We have a really good medical system. Let them do their jobs and we will ultimately find treatments for this. You raise a really interesting question, which some doctoral students somewhere should take up, and that would be to literally look in parallel at how psychologically and culturally and societally we coped with HIV AIDS and how we have failed to productively and in a positive way cope with COVID and what the differences were in the system and the stimulus and the patterns. That's an absolutely fascinating parallel. I'm old enough, I actually lived through that whole cycle. I remember at one point doing a PBS show where we were talking about, would you be bothered if a waiter who had HIV was serving your table? And of course, the whole point was, it wasn't transmitted by somebody serving your table. So it wasn't a problem. But people had started to be afraid and there was a huge effort to reassure them, partially, I think, out of a desire not to be anti-gay and not to stigmatize homosexuality, and partially because the scientific facts were so clear that you weren't in danger if you sat on the bus next to somebody who had HIV. You raise a really fascinating parallel that may be a more useful parallel than the Spanish flu in terms of looking at how the power structure and the establishment of the news media responded to two public health challenges. That's absolutely fascinating. Let me encourage you to sort of schizophrenically continue both your work in this zone, because I think you're learning things and beginning to put things together that almost nobody else has, and at the same time to go back and write some more novels. <laughs> I want to see both versions and be able to do podcasts with you. If you've got any idea how I can do that, please let me know. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to have you come back sometime and just go through your novels and how you wrote them and why and what you were doing, because I find them to be extraordinarily fun and also very, very educational and thought-provoking. I've got one question for you. You said a couple of times that you were a fan of Fauci's. You had him on your podcast. When did the scales start to fall from your eyes and when did they fall completely? Two things. One is I went back and found a 2012 article Fauci had written about precisely the dangers of this kind of experimentation and that scientists were inadequate to have the discussion about putting the public at risk and it had to be a public discussion. You read that article and it condemns everything he did 
in funding Wuhan and accepting China's word about Wuhan. And Claire Christensen and I had written a book two years ago on Trump versus China. And any reasonable view of Xi Jinping's China is that it is a totally totalitarian state with zero regard for honesty and totally untrustworthy. And the idea that we were giving them money because we trusted them was a sign of insanity on our part. And then second, I watched him gradually become Fauci. I mean, with you know, capital letters, italicized, with a small crown on the top of it. And you can't be a good scientist and be a self-promoting person. I mean, good scientists are always humbled by the degree to which they know that their current knowledge is inadequate and will change. There are no facts in science that are unchangeable. That's the very nature of science. And I actually was going to mention to you earlier, I think part of what we've seen is a little bit like there were cycles in the Middle Ages where you would suddenly have waves of panic, particularly the flagellanti who would go from city to city beating themselves to try to drive out the demons which had made them unworthy of God's love. And you sort of have a worldwide elite. I mean, Davos someday may be studied as a central infection system of greater damage than Wuhan, because Davos has given the entire world elite of rich people and powerful people this mythical belief that they live on a separate island from the rest of us. But is it mythical? They do seem to live on a separate island from the rest of us. Well, to the degree that they do, it's likely to be an island which will presently be invaded by the other 9 billion people who will throw them out. You look at Austria going through a totalitarian shutdown. You look at Australia talking about building concentration camps. I mean, the elites can only punish the average person so long before they begin to generate a resistance and a countervailing level of energy that becomes horrendous. This is dangerous stuff. And I don't think that they realize that. And people like Bill Gates may shrink radically in public esteem by the time this is over. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, it certainly has shown that the emperors, they may not be naked, but their togas are thin at best. No, what's really bad is they steal your clothing and then demand that you wash it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Listen, thank you, Alex. This has been more than great. I love having a chance to chat with you, and I'm a great admirer of your work, and I think you're doing something very important in providing people new ideas, new thoughts, and new pathways to reevaluate what we've been doing at a moment when we desperately need it. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. I appreciate it. And I hope if you do read Pandemia cover to cover, you let me know what you think. And you owe me a book review of The Power Couple. That's for sure. And I will certainly do that. And I will be back in touch. Thank you, sir. Thank you to my guest, Alex Berenson. You can get a link to his new book, Pandemia, How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government, Rights, and Lives, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, 
Listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.